Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, February 2nd. We begin with the ongoing protest and blockade taking place at the Coots border crossing. Global News reporter Lauren Pullen brings us the latest on the situation, now in its fifth day. February is Black History Month. We hear the remarkable stories of two black Canadians and the impact they had on our nation. We speak with Robert Small, an expert on black history and a member of the Order of Canada. Next, it's another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Janney answers COVID-19 questions as sent in by you, the listeners. And finally, anyone who's gone through a home renovation knows it's a lot of work and a lot of legwork shopping around for the right materials you need to get the job done. We learn about a new Calgary-based company that aims to streamline the process of renovating your home by creating a one-stop shop for your project. We speak with James Agnew, owner of Renovation Room. The Coots border crossing in southern Alberta has been blocked since Saturday, causing supply issues on both sides of the border. And demonstrators say they won't move until all COVID mandates are removed. With details on the ongoing situation, we're joined by Global News reporter Lauren Pullen. Good morning to you, Lauren. Good morning to you. Good morning, Andy. Can you give us an idea of, of your location right now and what you're seeing, Lauren? Yeah, we are, uh, police have led us through to just the other side of the blockade here. And uh, as we drove through, you could see those trucks stretching for at least a kilometer, likely quite a bit longer. Things do remain at a standstill here this morning after that attempt by RCMP yesterday to start breaking down this blockade. RCMP are still set up everywhere around the area, though. And uh, there are new social media calls for support today and potential blockades throughout Alberta. RCMP confirmed to me they're aware of those as well. Protests set the province's major routes, popular intersections, and some, they say, uh, have already started. So what exactly is the problem? We had heard that as some protesters were removed or left, others moved in and filled up their places. So is it just that the sheer numbers, uh, RCMP are having to beef up their forces to try and remove this illegal protest? Yeah, so it was quite a dynamic situation that unfolded uh, throughout the afternoon. Um, Police officers, RCMP, actually came in, started going vehicle to vehicle and saying, look, uh, I'm giving you the opportunity to leave here or potentially be arrested and face fines. Some people did take that opportunity to leave. And while that whole situation was unfolding, that was when uh, a group of new protesters actually blew past a police blockade. And uh, a head-on collision actually happened between a protester and likely one of the other protesters that was attempting to peacefully leave the situation. And and that's where things started to take a turn as well. Um, Those protesters blowing through. And after that head-on collision, There was an altercation uh, that actually led to an assault. And RCMP said at this point, uh, with those protesters blowing through the blockade and with those tensions rising, they needed to pull back. Lauren, what can you tell us uh, as far as what's on the agenda today? What's expected to happen or what are you hearing? So RCMP have made it clear that this blockade is illegal and they are going to continue their efforts to clear the area. We don't have a timeline or uh, any next moves on exactly when they're going to move in, how they're going to move in or what is happening next. But again, both uh, RCMP and Premier Kenny uh, condemning this action as illegal, blocking that essential highway to the border. And and as you mentioned, uh, traffic at a standstill 
on both sides. One thing the Premier did call for uh, yesterday was actually extended hours and extended service at uh, other borders along uh, the Alberta-Montana border there to try try and accommodate as things still unfold. But uh, yes, we are expecting more to be happening throughout the day to come here. And Lauren, understand that uh, protesters are starting to harass people in coots as well with uh, hearing word that you know there were protesters taking pictures through the window of the mayor's home, for example. Yeah, police uh, and the mayor acknowledging that those protesters did show up at the mayor's home. RCMP were were pretty clear on this one, saying this fight is not with him. He's not the one who has put the mandates in place, and he and his family should not be facing this harassment. The mayor talked to us this morning and said he actually received some some threatening text messages as well. So, again, RCMP condemning that right away. No violence reported in that situation, but definitely rising tensions and a, a lot of a lot of frustrations, a lot of anger from from everyone everyone involved here. Very interesting, and you know, hopefully, we can come to a peaceful re- uh, resolution today and sooner rather than later. Thanks for your time, Lauren. We appreciate it. Thank you. That is Global News reporter Lauren Pullen live on the scene at Coots. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because we've, we've got some, you know, texts on both sides yep. saying, you know what, this is it. We, we need our quote-unquote freedom. And other people saying it, the time is up and uh, they're not getting the support that they would have wished, particularly as it goes on. Here's a text from Al. Obviously, these guys at the Coots blockade are just troublemakers there to cause trouble. If they were truly concerned about the plight of truckers in the trucking industry, they'd be allowing the legitimate truckers trying to cross the border to do so and deliver the goods that are on their trucks. Maybe the possibility of a few days in jail, huge fines and the expense of having their trucks towed or impounded might get them to reconsider their action. And, you know, we've heard that from a lot of legitimate truckers that a lot of these people are not trucking industry people they are just Mm -hmm. people who are angry at restrictions at the federal government and you know they're in there as we were you know uh, one of the quotes from one of the truckers was they're down there in their you know expensive pickup trucks just joining the fray and and a lot of these people are causing a lot of problems the chance to be part of something but Mm -hmm. are you really behind it and it's interesting as we've heard over the past you know uh several days that these trucks, for the most part, are trailerless in the sense that logos and the companies behind these trucks and these brands don't want any part to do with it. You know, you don't want to be attached to something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I heard an interesting discussion on Shay's show. A couple of truckers had called in to say, you know, these people who say, no big deal, just find a different place to cross the border to the truckers. They're, they have paperwork that is filled out to cross oh, at a specific place. The amount they pay, uh, you know, dollars to cross in those areas. So they have a route that they're supposed to take. The fuel to drive to a different location. Oh, yeah. And, and whose pocket is all that coming out of? So this is really starting to, uh, you know, affect the trucking industry itself. And, you know, as Ted just said, it's a global embarrassment identifying Canada's weakness. PM should be bringing in the military to assist the RCMP on this one. Well, we'll see. And I think that there could be some action today. We'll let you know Mm -hmm. as it unfolds. You can keep it right here on 770-CHQR. It is Black History Month, a time to expand our knowledge about historical black figures that helped shape Canada. This morning, we're talking with a black history expert and member of the Order of Canada, Robert Small. Good morning, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Appreciate your time this morning. Tell us a little bit, in your view, why it is so crucial and so important, and more so than ever, that we we begin to talk and tell the stories about black people who have helped shape this country of ours. 
Well, I think it's very important given the pandemic and the divisions that have occurred via various reasons and stuff like that, that we bond together as Canadians, learn more about each other, and realize that our whole history of this, of this, great, of this great nation has been forged on the backs of everybody, that everybody has contributed to the creation of Canada and learning more about the stories that, that detail what people have contributed to only enhances our our kinship and our fellowship going forward. Good. We've got a couple of uh, great examples we, we'd like to cover this morning with you, Robert. Uh, let's kick things off with uh, a lady whose name has been in the news over the past few years, and now we can basically see her face on a daily basis. <laughs> it's Viola Desmond. Tell us about her story. Yeah, well, Viola Desmond was a businesswoman. She was a civil rights activist. She was born in July 6, 1914, and died in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where she where she was born in uh, February 1965. So the one thing that, as a business person, Viola Desmond was traveling to throughout Nova Scotia, and she went to a the Roseland Theater, in New, New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, and this is where her actual story begins. <clears throat> because unfortunately, something went wrong with her car. She went to the mechanic. The mechanic told her that uh, she would have to wait for about an hour or so to, until the car's ready to, to continue on her journey. So she went to the, to the Roseland Theater in New Glasgow to basically get rid of some time. So what happened is that she sat in the bottom half of the theater, where she was, whereas back then there was still segregation in, uh, in Nova Scotia and throughout Canada, and she was supposed to uh, sit in the, bo- in the top half of the theater. So consequently, she was arrested, put in jail, and the reason that she was put in jail is because she was sitting in the bottom half of the theater and she didn't pay the, I think it was the one cent difference between the, the ticket price for the top of the theater versus the bottom. So the community found out about what, she, what, what occurred to her, they started protesting, and consequently she was vindicated of that, and she was basically, she is, the Rosa Parks of Canada, prior to Rosa Parks. I think that's the fascinating thing, Robert. In school, I remember, you know, in my life as a kid in school, learning about the U.S. civil rights movements and and those who were so prominent during that time. And we really didn't focus much on what happened here in our country. And I think what Viola did is so key that we, you know, we teach that. We learn that better, our own history here in this country. And the fact she was selected to be on the $10 bill is pretty special, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely significant, and it's inspirational every time I have to let go of my $10 to buy gas, right? <laughs> and then some. But you're on the same. Yeah, that's like, yeah, I think it was $60, but I was shocked yesterday, the other day. A bag of chips and a pop for 10 um, uh, But I'm wondering, uh, Robert, I, <laughs> yeah. I think that Sue's on to something here in the sense that our American neighbors and, and the media that infiltrates our, our lives and even growing up and maybe even the educational system, it's not that we did not have some very productive, very ambitious uh, you know, uh, black people in Canada to be proud of, but we've been inundated down south. But when you do the digging, we've got these rich stories. Yeah, we do. And we have, the, we have to do a better job as Canadians, period, across racial lines of telling our stories. The one thing I would say about the, Amer- uh, the Americans is that they tell their stories umpteen times. And never, they never get bored telling their stories. But we feel like as if we tell the story once, that that should be sufficient and being humble Canadians that we are. But I think that we should take pride in our, these stories and uh, advocate for them to be told numerous times in, diff- in several different ways. I think there's been like about 
five different movies on Muhammad Ali, major movies <laughs> as well, and that hit the theaters as well. And that's on one person. So we need to be, do a better job on telling our stories. So agree. So let's focus on another prominent black figure in this country uh, from Nova Scotia, Canadian boxer Sam Langford had the nickname the Boston Terror. Tell us about Sam. Yeah, he had several. He had several names: the Boston Terror, the Boston Bone Crusher, and he was named by ESPN as one of the greatest fighters that nobody ever that nobody knows. And the reason for that is because Sam Langford fought over 300 fights, and compared to like a Lennox Lewis or a Mike Tyson that might have fought fought like 50 or 60, even Muhammad Ali who fought over 50 some odd fights. And you wonder why did he like fight 300 fights? But back in uh, his day, he was born in March 4th, 1883, passed away in, in 1956. So when they didn't have pay-per-view and telecast or TV, let alone, so you had to actually travel from city to city, you know, for, so you might have like about five fights in, in three days because you're traveling to different areas fighting, you know. So, so, so Sam Langford was definitely a legend. And uh, he's an inspiration for many fighters to come, both in Nova Scotia and across Canada. Once again, a great story that is long due for a movie to be made out of him. And I think I did hear whispers of there being a a movie made of him, actually. Can you tell us about a project uh, that uh, you hold near and dear, the Legacy uh, Collection, the Legacy Project, what what, what you've been up to and what, what it's all about? Yeah, well, the reason I got the Order of Canada is because I spent 28 years of my life. I can no longer say that I'm not the old guy in the room, <laughs> right? So, uh, 20 years, uh, 28 years, I've been creating a poster called the Legacy Poster that features the accomplishments of African Canadians. So, throughout the last 28 years, I featured over 120 different African Canadians. I put five on each uh, poster. So, it's been a really great adventure because, it, once again, Speaking on 770, 770 is really uh, inspirational for me, knowing that uh, I've, I've been told that I've had a radio voice for the majority of my life, so I'm actually putting it into practice today. So the 18-year-old in me that heard that comment first uh, is celebrating. But needless to say, especially during Black History Month, you know, trying to make it, making history, uh, becoming the first uh, Black visual artist to get the Order of Canada is very inspirational, and I hope that Many Afri- African Canadians, as well as Canadians in general who practice art at a young age, feel that they can become an Order of Canada recipient based upon my example. Well, Robert, we're going to send people to thelegacyposter.com. Great work. And thank you so much for sharing a little bit more information that perhaps a lot of people did not know until this morning. And you do have a voice for radio. So when Andy is away sick, you can come and work with me. How's that sound? Okay, sure. You okay. know, I'll, I'll, I'll expect my phone phone to call like it did this morning when that happens. Okay. Okay, deal. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on. Thank you, Robert Small, member of the Order of Canada, artist and creator of the Legacy Poster. Again, thelegacyposter.com. Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, joins us once again this morning for another installment of Ask the Doctor. You can send us your COVID-19 questions right now via text at 403-974-8255. Good morning, Dr. Janney, and thank you, as always, for making the time. Good morning. I'm wondering if you, in your field, I know you're a very busy man, 
follow uh, the announcements on a daily basis, whether they're online or in person from Dr. Dina Hinshaw. And, and we're hearing more and more, not just from Dr. Hinshaw, but from Premier Jason Kenney, that it looks like we have plateaued and we're on the yeah. other side of the wave in this, uh, you know, fifth wave, if you will, when it comes to Omicron. What are your thoughts and what is the importance of this time, if that is the case? So I, I think the numbers are indicating we've begun to plateau or we have been plateauing now for, for about a week, which is good news. The problem is is that that's a balance between new cases and, for example, people leaving the hospital or people leaving the ICU. We've not seen hospitalizations or really ICU begin to take that downturn yet, and, and that's really what we're looking for next, is, is when will that pressure start easing off the healthcare system? And you know, I think the, the more striking number, the more shocking number, uh, I mean, really the tragic number, is we are seeing substantial numbers of deaths in this particular wave. And, you know, over the last week, with the announcements over, over this past weekend, we've lost about 120 Albertans. And that's just in about 10 days or so. If we put that in perspective, going back the last six or seven entire flu seasons, the worst we've had was 91 Albertans in an entire season. And we've lost 120 in just over a week. So this is still a major health problem, a major threat to to particularly at-risk individuals, and it's something we are far from out of at the moment. I think, Dr. Jenny, I'm sure you can appreciate it. People are, just, and I knew as well, uh, people are just, we're, we're, you know, we're tired and people are fed ah. up and we're seeing it every day and what's happening across the country. And kind of on a related note, Tina texted in and said, you know, we seem to be past the worst of this fifth wave, other than, of course, you just mentioned the deaths still, the numbers are way too high, but how long can can we continue, she's asked, to expect to live in a sort of a seesaw existence? Because it's inevitable there will be a sixth, maybe a seventh wave. Yeah. Do we get to the point where we just live with it and it doesn't disrupt our lives, or is that not possible? Well, we will get to that point, and really what determines that is the level of protection, the level of immunity that is out there among the, the general population. So what we are seeing is we are seeing with these subsequent waves, and we can, you know, there, there's nuance. The, the current Omicron you know, does appear to be not as bad as Delta, but still far worse than what we had seen for Alpha and the other variants. Um, so so the, the virus itself changes, but our population has been changing. We're getting vaccinated. We're being exposed to the virus. So there is a lower percentage of people that are going to hospital for the number of new cases a day. And that will continue. That, that percentage will continue to drop as more and more people become protected in the community. Once we get to that point, once we get to where people can catch the virus and are at extremely low risk of hospitalization, is really when we come out the other side and, and this starts to become something that is more similar to a cold or a flu. We're not there yet. And if we look at, for example, vaccination numbers in Alberta, we are the single lowest vaccinated province in the country. And the Premier can cite numbers that, that make that look good. And, you know, we do have to applaud that the vaccine effort has been great, but we are still 10th out of 10. And that is one reason why we are seeing a disproportionate number of deaths in this wave. You mentioned, uh, Dr. Jenny, the strengths and the unique properties of the Omicron variant. I'm wondering, you know, is it inevitable that we are going to see another variant you know, on mass like Omicron, or could this Omicron, you know, once it's peaked and we're on the other side, be the last of any, you know, you know, strong or, or real uh, candidates for variants to, to cause damage that we've seen? So, so we will see 
see another variant. The, the question will be how much damage can that next variant do? And, and once again, that'll be based on the timing. If the new variant emerges after we've established that, that high degree of community or herd immunity, it, it'll have a much less impact. If that new variant emerges in the next several weeks to the next month or so, it may still have the capacity to once again uh, uh, cause significant increase in hospitalization. So it, it's really about the timing. The only thing we can control as a, as a population is you know getting those last individuals vaccinated, getting those numbers up, getting that level of protection into the community faster so when the next wave arrives, we do not suffer uh, the severe illness that, that can be associated with it. Dr. Janney, question from Candice. Uh, she feels people who had Astra for their first shot, followed by two Pfizer or two Moderna, are a forgotten group of people. She's asking, are we to assume we are boosted because we've had three shots? Or should we be getting the booster five months after our last Pfizer? Yeah, the, the data I've seen has really suggested that, that that group is behaving very much like a boosted three Pfizer group. So the immunity from the mixed dosing that the AstraZeneca followed by one of the mRNA vaccines actually appeared to be superior than getting two mRNA vaccines. So that first round was excellent, and then that second mRNA vaccine basically acted as a booster. Now, the one thing to keep in mind is many of those patients had qualified for that third shot much earlier than the rest of the, the, the population who was, who was waiting for a, a, a you know actual termed booster shot or third dose. So their immunity may fade a little earlier, and if there is guidance later for a fourth shot, and we're not seeing that yet, but if there is, then that is something that they may have to be near the, the front of the line for, simply because of timing, not because their immunity was less uh, less strong, but simply because many of them were able to access that third shot earlier for travel purposes or, or other reasons. But it looks as though it's a really protective immunity from those three shots. Dr. Jenny, we've got another question here that's come up time and time again. I'm hoping you can address it one more time for us because, you know, we always say that there's no question off the table and people mm-hmm. may not have heard this. This person is questioning the numbers when it comes to cases and mm-hmm. or deaths. And they say one major flaw here, they count anything a COVID death, even if they caught COVID with a previously worse condition. So in Alberta, as well as other provincial jurisdictions in Canada, the COVID infection cannot simply be associated with the death. The COVID, invest, the COVID infection has to have contributed to the death. So, for example, if you were in a car accident and died and you had COVID at the time, independent doctors, not the doctors who treated you, independent doctors will look at that medical record and will determine did COVID play any role in that death. And if the answer is no, that it was simply something that happened to occur with another fatality, that is not counted as a COVID uh, cause of death. Dr. Janney, that's all the time we have this morning. We thank you so much for joining us once again. Appreciate it. You guys are always welcome. Take care. Thank you, you too. Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. If you're thinking of any kind of home renovation, there's a new business in Calgary that can help you out. Make it a lot easier, sounds like that's the case. Joining us this morning, we're hoping to catch up with James Agnew of the Renovation Room because when you say, and you throw this term around a lot, one-stop shop, generally how often is it a one-stop shop or you see something and have to get in the car and go to another? Uh, my wife and I did renos on our kitchen mm-hmm. uh, about a year and a half ago. And the thing is, the different meetings, 
the different locations, the different choices, it can make your head spin. And that's why this is a really neat concept. James Agnew is the owner of the renovation room, and he'll explain it because it's entirely his concept. It's never been done before. He doesn't actually sell anything. Uh He just gives you the place to go to find the products you need. So it's kind of like having a friend who has contacts for everything when you say, hey, yeah. You know, who Very knows somebody like who that. sells cupboards? I got the, you know, he's my guy. How about an electrician? And, uh, you know, some of the fixtures that I'm interested in. That is that is fantastic. And especially with, you know, over the past couple of years, we know renovations have been a big deal because we've spent so much time in our homes, right? And we're realizing, oh, maybe a little work needs to be done or maybe we need to change this or upgrade that or just do a full reno altogether. Yeah, and, you know, inventory when it comes to house buying is a very, very tight. So maybe you want to do those renos. So without further ado, here's James Agnew, owner of the Renovation Room. Good morning to you, James. Good morning. Tell us about this concept. How did you come up with it? Well, it was uh, an idea long overdue, and I thought about it a couple of years ago and talked to trusted friends, and they thought it's, uh, again, long overdue. So I started putting together the plan uh, to try to bring some sort of uh, saneness to the uh, builder and renovation selection process. Okay, so James, I've been to your showroom. It's gorgeous. It really is a smart idea, but you don't sell products. So who's your main clientele? Well, that's sort of the uh, the idea is that we want the homeowners uh, as as one of the target markets to feel that they're coming into an environment where we're an advocate for them, where we can help them uh, without any sales pressure to make decisions, uh, to put together budgets and stay on budget. Uh, for the builder and renovation people and even the, the designer community, uh, we offer a place where they can cut weeks and lots of driving to various showrooms uh, from their schedule and get things done very quickly. So we're trying to be an advocate for them as well. Oh, say okay. So give it, give us an idea of what this actually looks like because I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that it's not exactly products that you'll see, but it's the connection. So what's it look like if I count, if I were to come in? Well, first of all, we're trying to make it a fairly personalized uh, interview process where we sit down with you and find out what your style is and maybe even help you discover your style. In our, we have a discover your style area. And from there, we try to uh, define what your, the scope of your, your um, renovation in this case might be. And then we try to help you to put a budget together that you can then uh, complete with armed with the uh, the numbers and the selections, um, select your general contractor after this process and work can pretty much begin right away. So really, you've got in the showroom different products from different companies or suppliers to help us figure out what we like, what we don't like, and maybe figure out you know how we can set it together. Because most of us would love to think that we're designers, but we're not. We don't have the eye for that. So that's really where you help us out too, isn't it? Yes, uh, we've been able to partner up with uh, as much a local supply as possible. Uh, obviously, that's not always possible, but the uh, wholesale distributors have really come to the table. They've put their products in the showroom, and then, of course, at the end, we have a library where we can put uh, pretty much everything else, uh, keeping in mind that the builders have their favorite suppliers and we want to honor that. And when they send their customers here, we're going to help them select the products from the suppliers that they favor. Very interesting concept, a good local success story. Thank you so much for your time, James. We appreciate it. Thank you very much.
This is James Agnew, owner of the new Renovation Room. You can find them online at renovationroom.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.